Well, as Vanessa mentioned, we kick off this new sermon series, and we're going to be doing it over the next five or six weeks. And we've chosen this time of the year quite deliberately. Uh, we've chosen January because January, if you believe the media, is the month that everybody hates. Um, if you were reading the news this week, um, January is the, the month that is the bleakest month of the year. I had somebody stop me after the nine o'clock service and say, my birthday is in January. I look forward to January. Um, but I said, well, you are alone, I think, in looking forward to January. Um, the nights are dark and cold. The days are even darker and colder. Vanessa particularly loves January um, and just can't wait for it to finish, really. The weather is absolutely horrible. It's gale followed by snow, followed by sleet, followed by gale, followed by another gale, followed by more sleet, and then followed perhaps by snow. People are short of money. They spent it all on Christmas, and they haven't got money, and they're not paid until the end of January. New Year resolutions are already broken. Hands up if you have broken a resolution that you took out on New Year's Day. And the rest of you, denial is not just a river in Egypt. Uh, we have all done it. It's the time of the year, however, when people often take a step back. They review their lives. They start to do things differently. They, they search for that new diet. I won't ask you to put your hand up if you have begun, or indeed if you have broken, a new diet already. It's a time when people step back financially in relationships to review how they are doing. Last Monday apparently has become known as Divorce Monday. It is the busiest day of the year for divorce lawyers. Families, marriages that have somehow kept going during December, and they've kept together just over, just over the Christmas period, things just bubble out and explode over New Year, and the first Monday back is the busiest day for what used to be called Relate, Marriage Counseling, and Divorce Lawyers. First, I mean, it's a quite odd thing to do. I'm going back to work, and I'm divorcing you. It's quite a sort of odd juxtaposition, but that apparently is what is happening in the UK in 2015. Physically, gym memberships are taken out and renewed, and sometimes even used. Um, and apparently now you can even get something to, uh, it's like a watch that you can wear on your wrist. I was reading about this on the BBC website on Monday, and you program it to tell it uh, something that you don't want to go near. So it might be cream cakes, or it might be the gym. And whenever you go near something like that, it vibrates, and it reminds you that you're near something you shouldn't. I don't think you're allowed to program people uh, into it, but that raises a whole different... Um, anyway. Um, and that's why we thought we'd use this time over the next four or five weeks to take a spiritual checkup. So rather than a physical checkup, rather than a mental checkup, rather than a relationship checkup, rather than a financial checkup, how are we doing spiritually? How are we doing spiritually, collectively, and how are we doing spiritually, individually? What, if you like, is the state of your soul? As Vanessa mentioned, we have these four strategic um, arrows, we call them, and one of them is discipleship. Uh, we, want people, we want people to be helped to grow in their relationship with Jesus, and this arrow this one of our four strategic points actually underpins all the other three. 
Without this one, church planting, as we've been thinking about this morning, or social transformation, or theological education, none of these things actually occur. Unless we as individuals and together as a church are growing in our discipleship of Jesus, unless our relationship with Jesus is vibrant, alive, and active, then all the social transformation in the world, all the church planting in the world, all the theological education in the world won't mean diddly. Because if we're not growing in our relationship with Jesus... Well, actually, we'll stop doing social transformation, we'll stop doing theological education, and we'll stop, certainly, doing church planting. This is the key one. This is the one that underpins the other three. So that's what we're going to be looking at over these next few weeks. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? And how are you and I doing in our followership of Jesus? Now, that can be quite a hard thing to quantify or measure how we are doing as disciples of Jesus. And what, what sort of metric do you use to, to measure that? Do you use how long is your prayer time? How often do you read the Bible? How often do you come to church? How long is this sermon? Is it more spiritual the longer it is? That's the metric that I certainly go by. And it may feel like to you as well. Is that a right metric? No, biblically, those aren't the right metrics. The metrics that we have to use really is the fruit of the Spirit. Are we becoming more like Jesus? Is the fruit of the Spirit more evident in your life and in my life? So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are those characteristics more present in your life now than they were six months ago? than they were 12 months ago. Because if they're not, you're not becoming more like Jesus because the fruit of the Spirit is producing the character of Jesus within you and within me. Last year, this time last year, we had a sermon series where we took you through various spiritual disciplines. It was called Breathe. Now, one of the things we'd like to suggest, along with the Soul Text Challenge, is that you may want to revisit some of those talks. You think, great, even more talks. But you may want to think, am I actually doing those spiritual exercises, those spiritual disciplines? Or have you neglected some of them? Have you never tried any of them? Well, just try one or two over the next two months. Try slowing down for a week. In life, Try fasting from different things in a week. And you'll find in those talks suggestions as to how you could follow some of those spiritual disciplines. And as Vanessa has mentioned, during the Soul Text Challenge, we want to help each other to think through what does it mean to be a, to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and to do it in the context that is not in this building. You see, we don't measure how well we're doing as Christians with what happens within this building. This building is supposed to be a sort of filling station, I suppose, for want of a better term. But this is not the place where you show your discipleship of Jesus. Where you show your disciple of Jesus is Monday to Saturday at work, at home, in your office, at school, at college, at university, on an aeroplane, on a train, in a relationship, in a different context. So that's why 
we've got this soul text challenge because these questions will come perhaps in the middle of a business meeting. Perhaps when you uh, have just got out of the car and you will get a text that says, how patient have you been in the last hour? And those are the sort of questions that we're going to be asking ourselves because that is the test of our discipleship. That is the test of whether we're becoming more like disciples of Jesus or not. How we actually live in day-to-day life. And to do so, we're going to use this book by John Ortberg called Soul Keeping. Um, And the Bible speaks about various aspects of human beings. Um, There's some sort of, not controversy, but difference of opinion as to what the Bible actually says and how the Bible divides up a human being. And if you look throughout the Old and the New Testament, there isn't actually one way of dividing up a human being, according to the Bible. Um, So there are various terms used in the Bible referring to what makes up a human being. So terms like the spirit, or the body, or the flesh, or the soul, or the heart, that's the one that's often repeated, the heart. Now in the Greek world, there was a definite mind, soul, and body. That was clear. That's the way in which Greeks divided up uh, a human being. But in the Old and the New Testament, some of the same words are used in different ways or the same way to mean different things at different times. There's seemingly no one clear sort of breakdown of what a human being really comprises of. But rather there's a sort of acknowledgement through all these different terms that we're a complex whole of all the above. That as human beings, we're made up of spirit, body, flesh, soul, and heart. Especially in the Old Testament, the word heart is used to describe the essence of a person and the entirety of a person. Again, after the nine o'clock service, somebody was telling me that a scientist this week is claiming that there, there are cells in the human physical heart that, that can feel emotion in the same way that there are cells in other parts of the body, which is quite interesting that what the Bible has always said, that the heart is the essence of a person, maybe science is discovering that there may be some truth in that. Now, in his book, Soul Keeping, John Ortberg has a particular way of referring to the term soul and a particular definition for these different terms. So he breaks down a human being into what he calls the will. And the will is our capacity to choose and make decisions. And then Ortberg says there's the mind. That's a person's thoughts and feelings. So the mind is a person's thoughts and feelings. It's how we're conscious of things. Then he says there's the body. There's a person's physical being. How we put into action our minds and wills, decisions, impulses, feelings, and thoughts. And these are all contained in what Ortberg calls the soul. And in John Ortberg's model, I think he pinched it off his mentor, Dallas Willard, the soul is the capacity to integrate all the parts into a single whole life. And he says it's a bit like a sort of, um, if you're into computers, the body's operating system. It's a bit like Windows or Linux or iOS if you're into Apple. 
And it's, it's what makes our, our, our beings work. And the soul seeks things. The soul seeks things like harmony and connection and integration of mind and will and body. The soul is the, the thing, if you like, that interacts with other people or with creation, with ourselves, and of course, with God. The soul is the deepest part of a person. There's that, that saying, isn't it, that the eye is the window to the soul. You can look into who people really are as you look into their eyes. Dallas Willard, who was John Ortberg's mentor who died two years ago, defined the soul in this way. He says it's that aspect of your whole being that correlates, integrates, and enlivens everything going on in the various dimensions of the self. The soul is the life center of human beings. If your soul is healthy, Willard says, no external circumstances can destroy your life. But if your soul is unhealthy, no external circumstance can redeem your life. That's quite interesting. If your soul is healthy, no external circumstances can destroy your life. But if your soul is unhealthy, then no external circumstance can redeem your life. Now, I think that's true. I think it's true to say that an unhealthy soul experiences disintegration. Maybe you think about yourself, maybe you think about somebody else for whom you can recognize that that's true, that resonates. Because a soul is unhealthy, disintegration has started to occur. And sin always, always causes the disintegration of a soul. Because it leads to a breakdown in relationships between people, between people and God, between people and themselves, and between people and creation. So an unhealthy soul always leads to disintegration. But disintegration can also come in other ways. It just doesn't come through sin. Disintegration can come in other ways, for example, being too busy. Or perhaps be by being too tired. Or perhaps by being too worried. Or perhaps by being too stressed. Or perhaps by being not stressed enough. Or perhaps by having too low an opinion of ourselves. Or perhaps by having too high an opinion of ourselves. All these things contribute to a disintegrated soul. It might be seen, a symptom, uh, an external demonstration of it might come out through disintegrated or dislocated or diseased relationships. Maybe in the workplace or, or maybe at home, maybe in a marriage, maybe in a friendship. All these circumstances may lead to a sick or a sad or a distressed, or maybe an 
even a, a weary soul. I don't know about you, but there have certainly been times in my life when I can think my soul was weary then. Maybe that's true for some of you this morning. As you think about your soul, that's what it feels. It feels weary. Somebody today simply said, to be honest, Dave, my soul feels dead. Maybe that's where you feel this morning. Maybe through different reasons, maybe through anxiety, maybe through bereavement. That's probably a normal response to some of those states. But your soul feels weary, it feels sad, it feels sick, it feels dis-eased. It was John Steinbeck, the author, who said, a sad soul will kill you quicker than a germ. And again, maybe you can think of people that you know or have known in the past, where as you think about them, the way in which you would describe them is somebody who has a sad soul. There's nothing more poignant and often sadder than somebody who has a sad soul. Now, our society will often encourage us to address the outer symptom. That's why people do what they do in January. So they start a new diet, they start a new fitness regime, they start something new, make a New Year's resolution to try and change what is outside in order to change the inside. So people will have at this time of year that new diet, that new fitness regime, that new set of clothes. Even some people will say, in January, I'm going to get myself a new set of friends. Interesting designer item, uh, that you can choose your friends to get a new set of friends. So you might also get the latest mobile phone upon which to do the soul check challenge, ironically. You might get the latest television. You might get the latest app or the latest time-saving device. And you see, what's happened is that our culture has replaced one S word with another S word. They've replaced the word soul with the word self. But I don't know about you, but the word self seems a lot lighter than the word soul. By using the word self rather than soul, they've stripped it. They've made it smaller and less weighty. They've reduced it. But our world, our society, our culture will very readily talk about the self rather than the soul. If you go into a bookshop like Waterstones, you will find enormous sections on self-help. Huge sections. And people now will speak about self-improvement or self-esteem or self-assessment or self-fulfillment and will succeed only in becoming self-righteous. But people will very rarely talk about the soul. But the self is a pale shadow of the soul. Imagine if we'd started, we did start uh, the nine o'clock service with this hymn, and rather than using the words that have traditionally been used, we'd have sung, praise myself, the king of heaven. Or bless the Lord, O my 
self. Sounds odd. It sounds thin. And that's, ironically and sadly, where our society has ended up. We're very, very quick to talk about the self. We're very reluctant often to talk about the soul. Yet even the author, if you like, of postmodernity, an author called Douglas Coupland, said, I don't deserve a soul, yet I still have one. I know because it hurts. It's actually one of the reasons, if we're honest, why we call what we do on Saturday evenings for people, some of whom are homeless or on the margins of society, we, we deliberately called it soul food. Because yes, we want to give people a meal, but also we want to do so much more. We want, we want to serve the very person, the essence of their being. We want to give them a great meal, but we want to give them friendship, offer hospitality in a community. So what does a healthy soul look like? That's what we're going to be doing over the next five or six weeks, is examining the state of our souls. Swedish Baptists, at the start of a service, turn and greet each other, but they do something slightly different. We, we turned this morning and welcomed each other and said, how are you, and Happy New Year, and whatever. Swedish Baptists, as well as asking each other, when was the last time you went to Ikea, um, they will turn to each other and say, how is it with your soul? That's quite an interesting question, isn't it? How would you feel? I'm not going to get you to do it. But how would you feel turning to the person next to you and asking them that question? But also then allowing them to ask you, how is it with your soul this morning? You see, sometimes in church, it's very easy to be a disciple of Jesus. If you just come on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening, people ask you, how are you doing? You say, fine, fine, fine. And it's a bit like a sort of snooker table. We just sort of bounce off each other, giving the answer that we know the other person wants to hear. But what would happen if we started to actually tell the truth? And if somebody were to say to us, how is it with your soul? we would start to give a real answer, a truthful answer. Well, probably the reality would be that the person would just say thanks and just start to walk away, would not be prepared for an answer of that depth. But what would happen, I wonder, to our gatherings on Sundays if that actually was the case? Well, that's one of the things we're going to do over the next few weeks, is ask each other what is the state of our souls. But the question is, what does a well-kept soul look like? Well, we have it here in Psalm 24. So if you've got a Bible or a smartphone, if you can get the Bible back open on the app and turn to Psalm 24, we have, if you like, one of perhaps the most famous, well-known uh, psalms of King David, a psalm that probably King David himself wrote. And it is the psalm, it is the prayer, it is the song of a soul that at this stage in David's life was well kept. Now, if you know anything of David's life, it was not always like this before, and it certainly was not like this always afterwards. But at this snapshot of David's life, his soul is well kept. And this is what a well kept soul looks like. 
Psalm 24 is a psalm, a song, a prayer, written originally to commemorate the peak of King David's life. It was the return of the Ark of the Covenant to the city of Jerusalem. You know, remember the Ark of the Covenant over Christmas? You were watching Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, and you saw that one where the, the Ark of the Covenant, and it all came off and did scary things to those Germans. Um, well, it's that thing, the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and it, this was the occasion when it was brought back, for, well, brought into Jerusalem. And it was a time of enormous celebration and triumph as a nation. It was an event recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So this is a psalm, a song that was written to commemorate this occasion, but also it was a psalm, a song, a hymn that was then rolled out whenever there was a, a, an occasion to celebrate Israel's nationhood. So a bit like um, Amazing Grace or Flower of Scotland be rolled out on occasions to celebrate Scottish uh, nationhood or Jerusalem uh, in England, even though it's ironic and most of the answers to the questions is no. Um, they're, they're sort of hymns that are equated with nations. And this is, if you like, Israel's national hymn. This would be sung at times of national celebration. And it's a psalm that divides neatly into three short sections, and it gives us some clues as to what a healthy soul looks like. So firstly, verses 1 and 2, a well-kept soul recognizes who God is. Verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the Lord and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. A well-kept soul acknowledges, remembers, deliberately chooses to acknowledge who God is. A sad soul, a weary soul, a sick soul, either forgets or deliberately chooses not to remember who God is, or perhaps is unable to remember who God is. Most sin occurs, certainly in my life, because I either forget or deliberately choose not to remember who God is. I think that I know best rather than God. The, everything, the psalmist says, belongs to God. The earth and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. The seas and the waters in Jewish thinking were, were symbolic with evil. So God forms the land, forms the earth upon the seas. He's over the seas. He's established it upon the waters. The psalmist is saying God is in charge. No matter what may happen in the world, no matter, no matter what we may read in the news, no matter what events may unfold in Paris or Nigeria, God is still in control. How do we know that? Because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. A well-kept soul remembers who God is. And it puts God at the center, not me. The pursuit of self puts me at the center, not God. The psalmist begins by remembering who God is. A well-kept soul realizes, remembers, acknowledges that it's not all about me. It is all about God. And Christianity, if it's about anything, is about dying to self, not fulfilling self. 
Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, whoever would come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, you won't go into Waterstones and find a huge section on self-crucifixion. Self-fulfillment, self-help, yes, not self-death. Tellingly, you won't find many Christian books written on it either. Because it's not something that we like to talk about, but that's the reality. If a church is growing healthily, all that's happening is that the church is enabling people to die to self better than other churches. That's all that's happening. If it's growing healthily, it's about dying to self, not fulfilling self. Now, the paradox is, the irony, of course, is that as we follow Christ, as we become like Jesus, we become more fully who we were always meant to be. So, a well-kept soul remembers who God is. Secondly, verses 3 to 6, a well-kept soul knows how to approach God. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. God is over all, in charge of everything, but he's still accessible. We live all the time in God's presence, but if we are to consciously recognize who God is and meet with him face to face, then a well-kept soul knows, remembers, acknowledges that certain things are required. Right living, right thinking, and right relationships. With people and with God. Or as the psalmist puts it in verse 4, clean hands and a pure heart. And you see again the integration of life and soul and relationships and prayer and living and work. Right living, right thinking, and right relationships, clean hands and a pure heart. Religion says these things can be earned. If you pray in the right way, if you go to church enough, or the temple, or the mosque, or if you go on pilgrimage enough times, the psalmist knows that these things have to be received rather than earned. But that only he or she who have clean hands and a pure heart are able to go into God's presence. And that sense of seeking there in verse 6 has a sense of humility. You seek God humbly. Then finally, it leads verses 7 to 10 to this well-kept soul encountering God. And the, the last verses of the psalm is about this amazing climax of a long journey, not just from Kiriath-Jerim, which is where it is in 2 Samuel 6, where the Ark had been, but from Mount Sinai, where it had been given, all the way to Mount Zion. This is the return of the King of Glory. And in this, there, there are various bits going on. You can't really, you know, if you've been in a, an Episcopal church, an Anglican church, um, and you just read this psalm, it doesn't quite give a sense of, of how it's supposed to be read. These verses are supposed to be divided up, what's called antiphonally. So this side would shout, lift up your heads, O you gates. And this side would shout back, who is this king of glory? And the idea is to be like a sort of different ends of a football stadium with one end of the stadium shouting to the other, not who are you, who are you, or whatever they shout at football stadiums these days. Um, but they shout, 
lift up your heads. And the, the, the people inside the city in Jerusalem shout, who is this king of glory? And the people outside shout back, the Lord, strong and mighty, lift up your gates. Why lift up your gates? Because God is too big to squeeze through them. You can't get God through these gates. You can't make doors big enough to get God in. So what do you have to do? You have to lift up the gates. You have to take the doors off the hinges. You have to open wide because God is coming and this is who God is. And again, the people shout from inside shout, well, who is he? He's the Lord, strong and mighty in battle. It's a very dramatic, visual, and deeply symbolic psalm. So that's the song, that's the prayer written by a well-kept soul. At this stage in David's life, his soul, his life, his mind, his thoughts, his feelings, his heart are integrated, even his relationships. He's doing what God wants him to do. He's being the person that God wants him to be. He wasn't before and he won't be afterwards at various times in his life, but this is what a well-kept soul looks like. God makes himself known, accessible, and available to an integrated life of integrity. God is at the center of his soul as well as his relationships, his work, and his worship. So the question very simply for you and for me is how does my soul compare? If you were to think now, as it were to take a spiritual thermometer, ECG, on the health of your soul, what would it look, feel like? Does it feel weary? Does it feel sad? Does it feel sick? Does it feel diseased? Or does it feel healthy? How healthy or integrated does your soul feel? What if Jesus was using a diagnosis rather than anticipating a destination when he said, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Maybe that's for you this morning. You it seems, are gaining the whole world. You're bit of it. But actually, at the same time, you're aware that you're in danger of losing your soul. You are forfeiting your soul. What would it mean for you and for me to be a keeper of our souls? We talk about people being zookeepers, innkeepers, housekeepers, peacekeepers, even shopkeepers. What does it mean for you and for me to be a soul keeper, not a retainer, a grabber of our soul, but somebody who tends, who nurtures, who cares for our souls. What might it mean this week for you to attend to your soul? Now this week you aren't going to get a text. You're not going to get a question. That starts a week tomorrow. But what does it mean this week for you to attend to your soul? What will it mean on Tuesday afternoon? What will it mean on Wednesday morning? What will it mean on Thursday evening? What will it mean on Friday afternoon for you to attend to your soul? And then finally, what changes might be required in your thinking, your living, your relationships, your praying in order for your soul to be restored? These are some of the most profound questions that we will ever ask ourselves. And that's what's going to happen over the next few weeks. 
Church over the next few weeks will not be easy. And church for the next few weeks may well not be a comfortable place. But hopefully it will be deepening, enriching, and strengthening, and life-giving. Vanessa. Vanessa.